What is the state of study on the historical Jesus? Why has there been skepticism in the past about the historical contribution of documents like the Gospel of John? How does the fourth gospel actually make a difference in how we view the historical Jesus? We'll answer these questions more with our guest, Dr. Craig Blomberg, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of New Testament at Denver Seminary. In his new book called Jesus the Purifier, John's Gospel, and the Fourth Quest for the Historical Jesus. I'm your host, Scott Ray. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell. This is Think Biblically, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Craig, thanks so much for being with us, and so appreciate your work in this book. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting into this for our listeners. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, now you've been studying the historical Jesus for a very long time. How would you assess the current state of scholarship around the issue of the historical Jesus? I am very encouraged. Uh, if I look back to when I was an undergraduate in uh, uh, liberal Protestant, liberal arts college, and uh, the amount of things I was taught uh, were all that we could know about Jesus from historical research, um, I am very encouraged by how far we've come. Uh, I'm less encouraged at how well the story is known because hmm. uh, what gets publicized is the the avant-garde, the radical, the exotic, and the exciting, and uh, research that uh, brings us closer in line with uh, historical orthodoxy doesn't normally fit those categories. That's a really interesting way to look at it. That there's a difference between the research itself and what scholars are discovering and we'll just say the marketing campaign of what the popular <laughs> culture understands. So let me press on that a little bit further. We're going to get to how historical Jesus scholars do the research, what's even meant by this. But why should everyday Christians just care about the nuances and trends in scholarship that has happened over the past few decades? Well, I don't know that they need to care about the nuances. Um, can leave that to... Uh, the debates in journals, but uh, the general trends, I think, are crucial because uh, what we were just talking about, um, people uh, are likely uh, to, even if they have no doubts, uh, encounter friends or others uh, on the web or on social media who have been influenced uh, by um skepticism and uh, their arguments. And I am, if not daily, certainly weekly, uh, receiving all kinds of emails from people who just say, I'm a Christian layman from such and such, and I got asked this question, and I don't know how to answer it. Wow. Can, can you point me in, in a good direction? Hmm. So, Craig, what, what would you say to the priest to follow up on that a bit? What would you say to the person who says, you know, hey, I, I trust the gospel accounts. I read my Bible. That's good enough for me. Uh, I would say hallelujah. Um, but what happens when you come across something that you haven't thought about before and now you have some doubts? Or uh, probably sooner than that, what happens when you're interacting with somebody else uh, who doesn't share the same starting point and doesn't have that conviction that you have, um, they're not going to just say, oh, well, sure, you believe it, I'll believe it. Uh, they're they're going to want some reasons. 
Craig, I'm glad you get those emails because I get them daily and sometimes they're heartbreaking. And I think you're right yeah. that some of the research in historical Jesus we're going to get into is encouraging for lay Christians to say, oh, this isn't just blind faith. There's reasons behind this. But I've also found when just Christians maybe who don't have doubt discover there's this archaeological and manuscript in this tradition that is confirming, it's really positive to their faith as well. So seems to me there's Absolutely. both. Before we go any further, though, there's a distinction in the book, and I believe this comes from the historical Jesus scholar John Meyer. So correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a distinction between the historical Jesus, the canonical Jesus, and the, quote, real Jesus. Right. Walk through that uh, for us, if you will. Well, the real Jesus, just like the real Sean, Scott, or Craig, is the sum total of everything a person ever did, thought, saw, experienced in life. And obviously, uh, no one ever gets a comprehensive record of uh, a person's life. Uh, John himself, at the end of his gospel, acknowledges that when he says that whole world couldn't contain the books that would be written if you tried to say everything you wanted to about Jesus. Um, so the, the real Jesus is everything that uh, the triune God knows happened to Jesus on earth, and nobody else will ever have that comprehensive amount of detail. The canonical Jesus is simply the sum total of what we're told about Jesus in the, the canon of Scripture, and the historical Jesus um, is, uh, if you think of, of sort of Venn diagrams, uh, if that doesn't bring back horrible memories from high school math for people, uh, if the real Jesus is the giant circle that embraces everything, then you have two intersecting circles, much smaller ones inside of that. Um, there's going to be significant overlap, but uh, there's information um, that we can learn about Jesus, not a lot, but a little bit, um, from outside of the Gospels um, and even from outside of the New Testament. And then uh, there's information within the Gospels that we simply have no way of confirming or disconfirming um, based on the state of historical research. So the historical Jesus will be uh, for the most part, um, uh, a selection of what we find in the canon that has historical support for it. Okay, so is it roughly to say this? The real Jesus is the actual Jesus who was born, lived, walked, ministered, did miracles. The canonical Jesus is what we know about this Jesus in the scriptures that's been delivered to us that we believe as Christians— but then there's the historical Jesus that would include some of the canonical Jesus, but even within the canon, looked at that through a purely historical lens, some of those things can be corroborated and confirmed and known even with a greater sense of confidence than other things. And with the historical Jesus, there are certain things we know maybe outside of the canon. Was that a fair summary? That is so well phrased that now I understand why you're still teaching full-time and I'm not. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. So, Craig, uh, help help us, our listeners, a bit. Um, there's been a lot of discussion, both at the scholarly level and the popular level, about the reliability, historical reliability of the, 
the, the Gospels, particularly the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We'll get to the Gospel of John in a few minutes. Um, and how, how the Gospel writers could have remembered the events and the words of Jesus, uh, you know, when they were probably at, at least, you know, probably 30, 30 40 years after uh, the events actually took place. Um, why, why should our listeners think that the Gospel writers accurately recorded what they did about the life of Jesus, given that so much time had elapsed uh, and that, you know, memories are fallible and we got, you know, we just got fallible human beings involved. I think one of the the most overlooked answers to that question is um, the notion that disciples of a rabbi um, regularly discussed and talked about what their teachers said. Um, the very first opportunity they had to, uh, we'd probably call it debrief, after uh, some ministry opportunity, they regularly uh, committed uh, to memory um, at least the basics, the gist of what um, the teacher had said, and then, um, as we know happened, if we trust Scripture, in the case of uh, Jesus and the Twelve, uh, they would repeat what they learned, what they talked about to other audiences. And we have, um, in Mark uh, 6 and Matthew 10, Luke 9, um, accounts of Jesus sending out the Twelve and going if we take it uh, at all, literally, to every town and village within Galilee. Um, Josephus said there were over 200 such villages. Even if that just means uh, he went a lot of places, they went a lot of places. Um, the disciples are replicating Jesus' ministry of preaching the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew puts it, and they are telling of Jesus' teachings, as well as being empowered to work various kinds of miracles. Uh, this is not 30 to 40 years after. Uh, it's more like potentially 30 to 40 days after these things have happened, and they've been talking about them. They've been rehearsing what they're going to say. Uh, it's, it's a totally different model than we normally think about. Craig, one of the things I've heard you discuss uh, elsewhere, we're obviously talking about your book, Jesus the Purifier, but you've written books defending the New Testament, defending the Gospel of John in particular, is that one way they can remember is Jesus uh, told stories, and we remember stories. Uh, Jesus also probably told the same stories over and over again in a different way that they would remember. Uh, there's a decent chance that they took notes. There's all these kind of mechanisms built in that this idea of the telephone game is just completely non-analogous to the Gospels. So is that fair to say when the telephone game comes up? Because I get this all the time from students. Did you say that is a complete disanalogous understanding of how these traditions were passed on and even originally written down? It, it really is. Um, and add to that uh, all the, the elements you've mentioned that— uh, uh, a lot of Jesus, even the, the teaching that's not in parables, is often in uh, very poetic, very uh, mm. clipped and memorizable form. 
Um, but then I, I also love uh, uh, Ken Bailey's story uh, from the years he was teaching in Lebanon, a scholar who wrote a lot on parables, and he talked about uh, wanting to replicate the uh, telephone game in one of his classrooms to uh, um, Muslim background believers, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, they they didn't get the idea, and and uh, it was like, why would you want to do this? And he said, just just humor me, as it were, and so he starts by whispering. Uh, a fairly complex sentence in the ear of the first student. And uh, they went through the whole class and the last guy quoted it verbatim exactly. And it's like, so what's the point? Um, mm. <laughs> it's mm. a different culture. They're used to doing it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Now, Craig, I, I think, you know, some, some of the criticism of the telephone game has been that, that the more important the information, the more readily it's remembered. I mean, yes. it's, it's, it's one. Th it's one thing to say, you know, about the the, the grounds outside your house that uh, you know it's got all kinds of different plants and grasses. It's another thing to say you know, there's a huge snake in your garden, uh, and the the more typically the more important the information, the more readily it's it's remembered and recollected. But I think what you've provided, is, I think, is so helpful to to recognize that the the disciples of Jesus probably repeated his teaching, you know, maybe hundreds of times to different audiences, you know, starting, you know, maybe starting even while Jesus was still alive. Uh, so that, that, you know, that, the process by which the, those things got cemented in their memory uh, started, I think, a lot earlier than, than the, the scholarship has tended to indicate in the past. That's right. And, and those two... Uh are not mutually exclusive. Uh, people of my generation, even though admittedly I was only eight years old when John Kennedy was assassinated, um, I do have very vivid memories of that. Um, but one of the reasons the memories remain vivid is that over the years, there have been all kinds of social contexts where people have said, so can you remember where you were and what you were doing when Kennedy was assassinated, and by repeating the stories, that further cements the memory. Yeah, I, like you, I, re I remember exactly where I was when I heard when I heard that news, um, and I remember exactly where I was when I saw the first pictures of the nine eleven airplanes yes. you know, flying in the World yes. Trade Center. I think one of the other things that I think that has caused some skepticism about the gospel accounts, and if you can help our listeners with this, is that there, there are some differences between the way the gospel writers record certain accounts. Uh, some of the versions of Jesus' teaching are, are a bit different. Uh, say the difference between the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and the, the, the other rendition of it in Luke 6 or so. Um, but and so help our listeners understand, you know, what what were the gospel writers actually trying to do? They they weren't trying to produce, you know, biographies or chronologies right. in the in the traditional sense. But what were they trying to do, and how does that help us account for some of these differences in the gospel accounts? Well, actually, actually, they they weren't trying to produce biographies in the modern sense um, because the modern sense hadn't been invented yet. They were trying to produce biographies in what was for them the traditional sense, which was that uh, you put together a, a selection of 
key events uh, and teachings from the life of a person um, in broadly chronological sequence. You may or may not begin with something about their birth or upbringing, uh, depending on its importance for you. Um, there was a, a strong belief in the ancient world that you learned an awful lot about somebody by how they died. And so uh, you didn't have to be a religiously significant person to have a biographer uh, focus a disproportionate amount of time on the events leading up to and including your death. Um, it was very common. You can see this in uh, Diogenes Laertius' Lives of the Eminent Philosophers for someone to group together uh, a series of the most famous or influential or significant teachings of an individual. It was very common to uh, put together a, a collection of uh, things that they did that all uh, followed one particular model or, or pattern of activity. Uh, and you find all of these things in the Gospels. And then on top of that, you have to remember this is a, a world without uh, quotation marks or any felt need for them. Uh, it was perfectly appropriate uh, to uh, put in your own words the gist of what someone else said, so long as you were faithful to their intention and their meaning. Um, so... Uh, I would say uh, the gospel writers wrote very traditional biographies. Mm. It's just that their tradition isn't the same as ours. Um, I sometimes use the, the example from, from uh, sports and from the telecasting of sports today. We have the, the most amazing precision. We can uh, determine the, the winner of a swimming race by one one hundredth of a second. And uh, you would only have to go back 100 years and people's minds would boggle about the idea that that could ever even happen. Um, and so you want to judge uh, somebody's uh, actions by what they had available to them, by the standards of the day, not by some uh, anachronistic uh, overlay from centuries later. Craig, when I was in high school, there's so much discussion about the Jesus Seminar. Uh, can you remind us what that was, what <laughs> happened to it, and maybe how the Jesus Seminar is viewed today within historical Jesus research and scholars? Ah, oh, you're making me feel so old. I was alone <laughs> in my teaching career. Um, <laughs> I was going to comment on not remembering Kennedy earlier, but I just let yeah, it slide. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I almost went to 9-11 rather than mentioning Kennedy for that very reason. Mm, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> uh, the Jesus Seminar was a group who uh, had been meeting uh, for a number of years, but in the mid-90s uh, published uh, two large volumes that went through, um, one, all of the sayings of Jesus, and one, all of his deeds— uh, from all five Gospels. You say, wait a minute, what's the fifth? That would be the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. And um, they did something that up to that point in time was pretty unusual and actually considered by standards of scholarly etiquette um, out of bounds. Uh, it's kind of like we're talking about how old people are. I remember when it was absolutely unheard of for lawyers to advertise their services. That was just wow. breaking breaking all the rules of etiquette. 
And it used to be the same for uh, uh, true scholars in the whole realm of university disciplines. You aren't taken seriously if you courted media attention. You were just a popularizer. Well, the Jesus Seminar uh, broke from all of that and were wildly successful in uh, devising a method where the anywhere from 50 to 200 scholars who would come together twice a year would vote um, on how probable they thought uh, a certain part of the Gospels was by uh, tossing colored beads into a ball, um, red, pink, uh, gray, or black, red being uh, this is exactly Jesus, pink meaning it's close, gray, there's some relationship, but there's been a lot of distortion, and black, there's, there's no relationship with Jesus at all. And then they would give each bead a numerical value, average the numbers, and uh, whatever color they were closest with, that was the color. They uh, colored the saying in their four-color edition of very attractive hardback uh, books that, that were published. This became so well known uh, that uh, it had a disproportionate amount of influence on popular opinion as mm. people thought, oh, these really are the, the world's leaders in this area. We need to believe what they say. So, Craig, let's go to the Gospel of John here for a moment. This, this is the majority of what your book is about. Uh, I think it's fair to say it was once considered you know, not, not, not a significant contributor to, right. his, to, his, to the historicity of Jesus. Uh, yet that view, as, be, as, as you point out, has, has basically crumbled over the, over the past you know, few decades. What, what, are some, what are some of the historical discoveries about the Gospel of John, about the events of the Gospel of John, that have helped shift the scholarship uh, toward viewing the Gospel of John much more positively now in terms of what it contributes to the historical Jesus? It, it's one small portion of uh, the developments that have been occurring, but you're absolutely right. Um, even though uh, John seems to be uh, the, the last and the latest of the four, and he is the one that has the greatest number of long uh, monologues or dialogues of, of Jesus, uh, awful lot of red print if you have a, a red-letter Bible. Um, at the same time, he is uh, the gospel that gives more uh, passing information just tangentially to where Jesus was when things happened. Uh, something about the lay of the land, um, names of places, um, and to give just uh, one example that uh, uh, research continues on, uh, there are two large uh, pools that mm. are mentioned only in the Gospel of John. In John 5, uh, Jesus uh, sees a whole lot of sick people lying around the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem, and he singles out one man interacting with him, heals him, and then in John 9, uh, there's a blind man uh, who uh, he tells to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, these are pools that are, if, uh, if you go to Jerusalem, you can uh, see the ruins if you get on the right tour. Um, 
and uh, Bethesda is due north of the uh, Walden uh, city uh, of the, uh, uh, I, I should say, of the temple precincts, part of the, the Walden city of Jerusalem. And Siloam is due south. In fact, um, just within the last decade, there have been uh, more excavations of Siloam and what we thought was um, sort of the, the heart of the pool turned out to be just barely the, the entrance area. And we now know the pool was a whole lot bigger than it used to be. And there's good reason from uh, the uh, configuration of these pools um, and artifacts have been found around them to understand them as what in Hebrew are called mikvaot, uh, immersion pools. If I am a pilgrim to Jerusalem coming from the north, uh, this will be my one big chance to immerse myself to make sure that I am ritually clean before I enter the temple precincts. Uh, that's Bethesda. If I'm coming from the south, same thing is true about Siloam. Um, these are real places. They were involved with uh, purification. The stories that John tells uh, accompanying these locations are about uh, men who needed physical healing. And in one case, uh, Jesus provides it without using the pool itself. In another case, he uses the pool as uh, a help, uh, but it, it all fits. Somebody who doesn't know the country, somebody who's writing perhaps as a Gentile at the end of the first century, which is what I was taught not even quite 50 years ago, um, uh, would not have had all of this information, would, have, would not have known to be able to, to make everything fit together so perfectly. Craig, I have one question for you. I've always just been interested in and gone back and forth in my own mind about, and you talk about this being kind of a, a trend in Jesus scholarship that's welcome. And it's kind of related to how much can we know about Jesus's psychological state? So for example, people have said, you know, Jesus might've been affected by being an illegitimate child in terms of his psyche and his worldview. How much do you think these questions we should explore and are even knowable, given, like you said earlier, that the modern kind of tradition of psychology wasn't even remotely invented yet when these books <laughs> were written? Yeah, that, that is another fascinating trend to watch. Um, Albert Schweitzer, who was so influential uh, at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century in historical Jesus research, uh, basically, for most of the 20th century, he put an end to all kinds of psychologizing treatments of Jesus just pointing out, we just don't have the information to, to make this possible. And yet, um, in the last quarter century or so, uh, there has been uh, a revival. Uh, it's not a big part of uh, scholarship, but there certainly are a handful of folks um, who are doing what is called psychological criticism. Um, it certainly is more sophisticated than what was done uh, a century ago. And uh, there are some things like um, experiences of fatherlessness that transcend generations. You don't have to know anything about Freud to realize that somebody's going to have different life experience um, 
without a biological father, um, that there are things about people who have adoptive parents or an adoptive parent that uh, uh, are true cross-culturally and over time. Um, and so uh, I, I welcome uh, cautious hypotheses mm. of that nature, but um, we have to realize that uh, no matter how hard we try, they are going to be very speculative and certainly don't want uh, those to trump the actual information that we have in the Gospels. Craig, this has been so helpful to us. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Uh, and I think I, I hope our listeners appreciate all the work that you've done throughout your academic career to establish and to, to help uh, to help listeners cement uh, and students cement their their confidence in the gospel accounts of the historical Jesus and, and your role in that. I want to recommend to our listeners, again, your book, Jesus the Purifier, subtitled John's Gospel and the Fourth Quest for the Historical Jesus. If you want to do a, a deep, deep dive into the gospel of John, uh, this is this is a really great place to do that. And if you really want, if you want to understand sort of the history of the research about the historical Jesus. There's some re really helpful summary and sketch of that history in the book as well. So it's a, Craig, it's a really a wonderful contribution. We're really grateful for that. Um, and we want to commend that to our listeners. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. This podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I teach in the Masters of Christian Apologetics program, and we explore questions like the very one we looked at in this podcast. So we would love to have you consider joining us. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please give us a rating on your podcast app and consider sharing it with a friend. To submit questions or comments or make suggestions on issues you'd like us to cover or guests you'd like us to include, please email us at thinkbiblically at biola.edu. That's thinkbiblically at biola.edu. And as we can, we're going to come on and even address some of these on future episodes. Thank you for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.